You are listening to the Women of Wonder podcast, where we want to see sisters soar. We hope that you are inspired by this message. You all know we're talking about Rahab tonight. Um, And if you've been in church for a while now, you've probably heard this story more times than you can count, maybe more times than you really want to. Um, But this story is typically about a prostitute who gave safe haven to Israelite spies who were scoping out Jericho to bring about its destruction. Um, It's a story often focused on how God can honor even an unclean, sinful, promiscuous, deceitful Gentile woman in return for her hiding the spies. Um, Maybe that God's grace is so abundant that a prostitute could be included in the genealogy of the likes of King David and Solomon and all the way to Jesus, um, as well as mentioning her in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Um, And if God could do that for her, then surely he can do that for us too. Um, So if that's the reminder that you needed today, then consider yourself reminded. Um, And if that's a story that you expect us to hear in our time together, this is not it. Because that message, though it can be helpful, um, has often been used as a backhanded compliment to sinners and to women. Um, So as many WOW speakers have talked about in previous seminars, social location is important. Uh, But I think for Rahab, social location has been used and abused to focus on one particular denigrating message where a prostitute becomes her sole identity, like Lynette mentioned earlier. And so while elevating her, we often degrade her. We look down on her, we judge her, we see her as less than. Um, There's also some debate of whether the translation is really prostitute or if she was an innkeeper or both. Uh, So that might be a conversation that never fully has an answer. Um, So this, for this next, I don't know, 45 minutes, however long we have together, um, we're just gonna forget that she's a prostitute. (laughs) Um, We're just going to see her as any other person or any other woman um, because the prostitute label really limits how we think of her. But after the seminar, if you consider prostitute a helpful detail, um, you can go ahead and add add that back into the story if you want. It shouldn't be because you see yourself as better than her, that wow, even a prostitute, so then surely God could love me, right? It shouldn't be like that, but it should be more because you resonate and you see yourself within her. Um, But again, that prostitute label, detail, identity, whatever is not always helpful. So for tonight, this is the story of Rahab the Faithful. So in the brief that WOW gave me, they had a bunch of lists of, um, a list of what Ezers are in the Bible, what these quote unquote helpers are in the Bible. And the one that really stuck out for me in talking about Rahab tonight is Psalm 33 verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So what is this kind of help? But the rest of Psalm 33 describes what kind of help God is. Here are some other words within that chapter that describe God as Azer. Upright, faithful, righteous, and just. With a steadfast love, a creator, an advisor, and a counselor. Someone who watches over. um, Someone who's powerful and awesome, who delivers and keeps people alive, 
um, who protects and who is trustworthy. So with this idea of helper, we see that in Rahab's story, God is the Azer. He delivers Rahab and out of his steadfast love and watchful eye, God delivers and protects and keeps Rahab alive. God is trustworthy and God is powerful. But Rahab is also an Ezer as she delivers and advises the Israelite spies and also protects her own household. And Rahab declares God, her Ezer, the God of heaven and earth, uh, the one and only true God who, is she, who she is confident will protect her and she waits patiently and securely that that will come to fruition. Um, so her proclamation and fear of God, which we'll get into a little bit later, becomes a sign to Israel and to Joshua that gives them confidence as they enter the promised land um, and as they face their Canaanite enemies. It's Rahab's faith and her waiting, her hope in God's protection that covers her and in turn protects and covers her family as well. So Rahab and Ezer in her own right points us to the to God, who is the ultimate Azer, and she inspires faithfulness. So more than being an Azer who delivers and protects, she's a role model of exceptional faith, and that's what most of today's seminar will be on. She inspires people to wait and to hope in the Lord. So she's mentioned in the Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame. It says, by faith, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient or unbelieving. Her exceptional faith is praised here because she welcomed the spies. And that's what she's mostly known for, right? And it certainly is an act of faith. She went against her own king, her own people. She risked her life to do this. She took the spies in, hid them, redirected um, her king's men, and then sent the spies off strategically and advising them to hide for three days to avoid the king's men. But though this is the message that we usually hear about, this is the faith we usually hear about, that's not all. This was not her only act of faith, though that itself was heroic and it was very dangerous and it took a lot of faith, but there's so much more to it. Her acts of faith are chronicled in the book of Joshua, but they're so often overlooked. But that's what we'll be covering today. So before we dive deeper into the faith that Rahab had, um, we're going to define faith by the Faith Hall of Fame, um, Hebrews 1 verse. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So keep this verse at the forefront of your mind as we look at Rahab through these lens. Yes, she welcomed the spies, but she did that because she remembered. So in Joshua 2, 10 to 11, Rahab has this proclamation of faith in the God of Israel. And she says, I think I'll show it in a later slide, but she says, I know that your Lord is God. And she lists out um, like the Red Sea, this escape from Exodus, things that have happened in the wilderness to the Israelites. Um, and that is important because throughout Exodus through Joshua, the Israelites are reminded over and over again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who did this, who did that. And over and over again, my quick skim of Exodus to Joshua 
uh, found this at least 25 times, though there may be more. But I think it's important to note that the Israelites who had been there, they had seen and they have witnessed all these things firsthand. They didn't always have the faith. They didn't always trust God. They had to be reminded again and again. They went through so many cycles of sin and hardship, um, then repentance um, and remembrance. While Rahab wasn't there, she had only heard about it, but she had a faith in this God. So Rahab remembered. Next, Rahab heard and believed, as I just said. This is the proclamation of her faith. I know that the Lord has given you the land, for we've heard all these things. Um, the Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. So she went her, against her own culture, saturated with other gods, other idols, um, and she only had her eyes on the God of Israel. And ultimately, what's melting people's heart and especially hers, is the authority and the power of the Lord, not just that of the Israelites. And what's interesting here in this last underlined sentence, when she says, the Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below, is that really she's proclaiming God as the only God. There is no other God on earth. There is no other God in heaven. There's only God. And she calls God by name Yahweh. She identifies him by name. And it's not just the God of that certain people, the God of wine or the harvest, right? She's calling him by name. Another act of faith, um, as I see it, is that she resisted the narrative. She had faith that a God of another people would take her in. And when what, when what she heard was that all these other Canaanite peoples, all these other people outside of the Israelites, they were utterly destroyed. There was no room for them in God's story. She inserts herself in there and says, but I could be God's people too. She knows that the Israelites bring complete destruction, but out of faith, she dares to ask that God spare her and her family. So what she sees is complete destruction, contrary to what she believes in her heart, that God would save her, that God could love her. And that's like saying that the earth revolves around the sun in a time where everyone thinks the sun revolves around the earth. Or seeing that the sun rises every day, but believing that tomorrow it won't. It just seems outrageous when what you've been told is complete destruction. But she believes that that could be that could be upended, that could be a different story to that. The next act of faith um, is that she acted immediately. Here are two instances in Joshua 2, when the Israelite spies say to her, when the Lord gives us land, right? So the first time is when she's making this deal to protect her family. The spies say, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And then later again, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you've tied this scarlet cord in the window. But I think it's interesting here when she sends them away, they depart and it, immediately it says, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. She had told the spies, oh, just go hide for three days to avoid the king's men, then return to your camp. So she knew she had some time. She didn't have to tie that cord. 
immediately and this is something we'll continue to go into but she did it immediately she didn't wait she said as soon as I can I'm tying that thing on this window so this might not seem like so much of an act of faith that Rahab saves the spies three days later they return to Israel then maybe the next day they cross the Jordan maybe the next day they start marching around Jericho and then on the seventh day Jericho falls the way we tell this story in Sunday school and in sermons is just like, bam, 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 everything's happening at once. That deliverance comes quickly, that the whole shebang just takes less than two weeks and it's immediate. And that's why she tied that cord up so fast. But that's the story we get when we skip over three chapters in the book of Joshua. But this is what it really was. So Rahab waited. She waited those three days when the spies were hiding before returning to their camp. Once the spies returned to the Israelite camp, they waited another three days at the Jordan, um, at which time they crossed the Jordan. And the book of Joshua tells us it's the 10th day of the first month. Some, sometime soon, uh, they circumcised all the Israelite men, over 600,000 men, and they camped there until the men were healed which Dr. Google tells us that healing could take as fast as one week, but as long as six weeks, and definitely activity is limited. You know, if all these guys are walking around, it's uh, going to hurt a little bit. Um, so they're waiting there for a few weeks at least. So meanwhile, as they're recovering, Passover is celebrated. Then the Festival of Unleavened Bread is celebrated, which itself is seven days. Then finally... After all that, and maybe some other stuff in between, finally, they start marching around Jericho for another seven days after um, being healed. So all of that, especially with the circumcision in between, that could take a long time. That's like getting your first dose of the COVID vaccine and waiting until you're fully vaccinated to do any activities with other people. This was not a short wait. Here's a scaled timeline. Okay, so this is if... Recovery from circumcision took one week. Rahab saves the spies. Spies return to Israel. Israel crosses Jordan, the Jordan. They celebrate Passover, maybe approximately 10 days since the spies left Rahab's. Then there's the festival of unleavened bread, which, as I said, uh, lasts seven days. So within those seven days, there's your one week recovery time, after which after the festival of unleavened bread, then they can begin marching around Jericho, which takes another seven days. So this would mean that approximately 3.5 weeks had passed from when Rahab first saved the spies to when she was saved in return. So if there's a three-week recovery, because I'm not sure that um, that pain will really go away within one week, um, this is what it would look like. Push it back. A little bit further, Rahab would have, would have waited for five weeks. And if the Israelite men recovered in six weeks, then Rahab would have waited for a total of two months, at least two months, since she rescued the spies. But it could have been much longer. I know that this is very hard to see, but I think that just shows the point of how much time had passed. But no matter the case, Rahab waited for weeks. It wasn't immediate. Um, as we often make it sound like in children's Sunday school and sermons. So here's just the comparison 
of the first one being what we usually think it is and all the way to if recovery from circumcision took six weeks. So this was weeks upon weeks waiting without knowing if or when the Israelites would really come. Weeks of looking out the window, straining her eyes to see if there's any sign of the Israelites on the horizons, checking that scarlet cord, making sure it was still there. Weeks of gathering her family in her house, making sure no one stepped out at the wrong time or at all. And then one week of watching the Israelites march around the city, trumpets blowing. One week of wondering what sort of army and war tactic was this? And how could it possibly overtake Jericho? One week of watching the army come up to the city walls only to leave. And then finally, one day, wondering why the Israelites were marching around more times than before. One moment of hearing the trumpets blare and the shouts rise before the wall collapsed without resistance. And all this time believing in what she did not see, confidently hoping and believing that the Lord would spare her. So by faith, Rahab stood in awe and fear for what God had done for the Israelites, something she herself had not experienced before. She proclaimed God as God in heaven above and on earth below, in a world telling her otherwise. She dared to welcome and hide the spies and then invite herself into God's chosen kingdom. She acted immediately, tying that scarlet cord in the window when there was still time not to. And by faith, Rahab waited in confidence for an indefinite amount of time for the salvation that she hoped for. And it was by this faith that she was spared. This faith that acted immediately and waited indefinitely, not just what we've heard in the sermons, that it was just because she rescued the spies. So this is the Rahab we don't get to hear about in church on Sunday mornings and in Bible studies, but this is the Rahab that is in the Bible. This is the Rahab that is in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, as we were all sharing, what came to my mind was this thing called promised land spirituality, which is kind of an idea that throughout especially European Christianity and especially in our American forms of Christianity, we've come to rely on this thing that is promised land spirituality where we want victory and we want deliverance and want power over other people's. We want the perfect life and the perfect land, even if it's someone else's, and we want it now. Reflecting on where we've taken that and where we've run with that, that a good faith, a strong faith is considered, is one that prays and then gets the prayer request answered like immediately. Um, one that always has victory, that always gets the land, and sometimes that can be used in a bad way in a way that makes some of us who don't get our prayers answered so quickly, that makes us doubt our own faith or level of faith or closeness to God and makes us feel like, well, then I guess my faith isn't strong enough. I don't know. There's a lot of complex feelings there. Uh, that's a larger conversation, but that's what comes to mind that we have this tendency, as we all mentioned, to want things now 
when really even for the Israelites, it took over 40 years. And I, I think there is still room to doubt, you know, even in, in seeing Rahab's story, like maybe she didn't have any doubts at all. And I think that is one great way of looking at her. But then for someone else, it might be like, well, I could never measure up to that. I'm doubting every other second. So I think there's still room to be like, oh, maybe Rahab did stand at that window for hours on end and wonder if what she had been promised would really come true. Um, But she did still have that, at least one last strand of faith, keep bringing her on there. And, you know, that's not so much a a point of comparison for us to compare our faiths to Rahab, of course, but for her to be and to hopefully continue to be a role model of faith, doubts or no doubts, fear or no fear. We hope that you enjoyed this teaching. We are a community that walks alongside women to uncover and affirm their calling through prayer, teaching and celebration. Visit womenofwonder.us to learn more.